This is a time that we open our Bibles, uh, and I invite you to do that to 1 Peter chapter 3, as we have been going through the book of 1 Peter on Sunday mornings for a little while now. We come to chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Started looking at this last week, and I will continue it this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. After addressing some um, different issues on submission and how to make an impact in the world around us, uh, around their world, especially to the believers who were receiving this letter about relating to government, relating to your employer, relating in marriage, uh, then he comes to this section here in chapter 3, verse 8, to sum it up, all of you. And then he gives a list of um, mindsets that we should have toward one another, perspectives that we should have toward one another, attitudes that we should have toward one another in the church. And I went through those last week, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly kindness, uh, excuse me, brotherly love, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. And then started into looking at verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. This is our response to the world. Uh, this is how we relate to our enemies. And we started talking about that last time. The key verse in all of this, I believe, is verse 10. The one who, for the one who desires life to love and see good days. And in other words, if you want to be one who, who desires life and one who wants to see good days, if that is your desire, to have that kind of life, and then he surrounds it with these certain things that should characterize our behavior in this world. That's what this is about. None of this you can do on your own. I always sang it. You can't do anything unless Christ is in you. This is written to believers. These things, I read them and I go, wow, this is quite a list of things that go so contrary to my nature and to your nature. Living and loving the good life. Who doesn't want that? And it even almost sounds surprising there'd be a statement like that in the Bible, but here it is. It's from Psalm 34. Psalm 34 says that. It's what he's quoting in verses 10, 11, and 12, Psalm 34. The ancients called it the recipe for the good life. That is what this section has always been known as. He's not saying your life is going to be trouble-free. He's not saying your life is going to be problem-free in this quotation. In fact, David is writing this psalm while he's in a cave, hiding from King Saul, who's trying to kill him. And he comes out with this psalm, the first verse of this psalm, 34, which is quoted here in 1 Peter. This in 34 is, I'm blessed the Lord. And then he comes to these verses here and talks about, this is what I should be doing. These things characterize one who lives the good life. Zoe is the word for life. It's not talking about length of days. It's talking about quality, a life that has purpose and meaning. That's the life we're talking about. Remember last week we talked about Solomon who had everything, Solomon who pursued everything. He had lots of money, lots of power, lots of fame, lots of women, lots of livestock, lots of everything. The wealthiest man around. 
And he says several times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, all is empty, all is vanity. And we come to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he comes to the conclusion that he really could have saved himself a lot of pain in life if he would have just remembered one thing, and that's found in 12.1 of Ecclesiastes. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Remember your creator while you're young. Set the course early in life before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. I wish I would have set the course of my life early. I wish I would have remembered God in the midst of all my fame and wealth and power. I wish I would not have let those things so consume me and become the pursuit rather than God the pursuit in my life. I would have had life, meaningful Life. He goes on to say in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, when all is said and done, do this, fear God and keep his commandments. That's how he sums it all up at the end of his life. If you're going to have a full, a life that's full of good days, it's going to be a life that remembers God, Solomon says. It's not the external stuff. It's not the external stuff. Remember God, that's the key. So Peter is taking this Old Testament passage, 10 through 12, which is from Psalm 34. He inserts it here in his talking about the different mindsets that we should have in the body of Christ and in the world. And he adds a list, some things to that or shows that some things from the Old Testament run parallel to even things that are said in the New Testament. But he wants to give us the formula for how to live a good life. He's writing to people that don't have good lives, if you look at by the world standards. He's writing to people who are aliens. They're not liked by society. They're not tolerated by society. They're believers living in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation like we are. There's no tolerance for Christianity. There's no tolerance for believing in one God and the Lord Jesus Christ and ours. This is the only way to that God. There's no tolerance for that in this society or in our society even today. They were suffering. They were being persecuted. They were living anything but the good life if you look at their circumstances. So Peter is saying, now listen, if you mean to love life and see good days, this is what you need. That's, what's the, that's the message that he's giving them in this section. This is what you need. And we saw last week, he listed some things there. And from verse 8, you have to have a mindset of harmonious, meaning you're pursuing unity, not seeking division. Uh, sympathetic, meaning you learn to feel the feelings of others. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Brotherly, brotherly love. You, you say you love God and you don't love your brother. You're a liar. You, must, you cannot, you cannot uh, say that at the same time. I hate my brother, but I love God. A lot of people, I hear people say that. I just say to you, you can't do that. You don't love God. No matter what you claim, if you don't love your brother. Kind-hearted kindness 
and humility, meaning you put the needs of others before yourself. We saw those things in verse 8. Then we came to verse 9 and says, and now this is how your response is to be when you are mistreated, when you're treated unjustly. Verse 9 says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead for you were called. See the word for you were called? You were called to this. I don't know what you signed up for, but I'll tell you this, you signed up for this. You signed up for this when you became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You signed up for the suffering that believers will experience as he suffered. You signed up for this kind of response. Even though it goes against everything in you to retaliate, that's nature, that's your human nature. This verse is about not retaliating. That is not something that sits well with our flesh. But that's what this verse is saying. You were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You're to give a blessing instead so that you might see good days in life. We don't retaliate. We don't seek to get even because vengeance is mine, we're told in Romans chapter 12 and other places. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You're to leave. Equity matters to God. He is the one that will make all things right. I don't need to be concerned with that. That takes a lot of energy and a lot of time and a lot of pain and a lot of anger and a lot of bitterness and a lot of energy. You don't try to get your pound of flesh in your own way. But that's how we think. I know it's how we think. We all think like that. It's Old Testament language as well. Leviticus 19 says, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He will save you. Proverbs 24, 29. Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Remember what Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Whatever you want someone to treat, how you want someone to treat you, you treat them that way. Second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. We all love ourselves. We take care of ourselves. Whose teeth did you brush this morning? Yours, because you care about you. Who did you, whose clothes did you put on? Who's, who, who fed you this? You do all of these things for you because you care about you and you love you. He says, take that same love. Show it to your neighbor. It's all tied in. We're to be like Jesus. 1 Peter 2.23, we've seen it several times and talked about it for several weeks. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's our model. That's our example. That's Jesus. He, he didn't sin. And that's how his response was toward all the reviling and all the suffering and all the threats he just kept entrusting himself to the God 
of vengeance. God will have the last word on everything. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. These are, Peter is reminding us of these words. I touched on this briefly last time, but I thought I would just take you to let you see this and interact with the passage because Jesus is saying what Peter is saying to us. In Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus preaching 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is preaching about what it's like in his kingdom. Uh, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom, I am the king, and this is what my kingdom is like. If you know Christ and you're in his kingdom, one day there'll be a literal kingdom, but right now we're all as believers are in his kingdom, and he makes the rules. He makes the rules of his kingdom because he's the king. And each statement, or many, in, in the different sections of this first part, especially in Matthew chapter 5, you have, you have heard that it was said. You see that in verse 38? You see that several places in Matthew 5. That is the teaching of the religious leaders of Israel. So what he is doing is he is contrasting truth. He is contrasting their understanding of some Bible verses in the Old Testament with what is true. He is teaching them what his kingdom is like as compared to this kingdom that they're, or this Judaism as they're practicing it at this point. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is a passage on retaliation, okay? This is a passage that Jesus is going to teach you don't retaliate. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the cheek, your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. The Pharisees, scribes, teach you eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Basically, they've taken an Old Testament truth. You can find that verse in the Bible, by the way. But they've taken that as justification and a license for you seeking personal vengeance. Biblical permission to hold a grudge. And don't step on my rights. Don't step on my rights. Don't interfere with my stuff, my time, my reputation, my whatever. Don't step on any of that. Don't infringe on any of that. Those are my rights. And so he's taking the tradition of the Pharisees, which was to use that for retaliation, use that verse, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, to use it for personal retaliation. And he goes on and explains it in these verses. If you were to go to the book of Exodus, you would see the law of God systematically presented. In other words, you would see, he starts with talking about the moral law up until about verse, in verse 20. 
And then in verses 21 through 23, he starts talking about the civil law. The moral law would be laws related to us and God. The civil law would be laws for society and how society should function in an orderly manner. That's when you have judges, that's when you have magistrates, that's when you have courts. And the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth verses do not appear in the moral law, they only, excuse me, or in the law of personal relationships, they only appear in the civil law arena of Scripture. It's not a statement, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, it's not a statement for personal relationships. And that's how the scribes and Pharisees were using it. You can get vengeance. You can retaliate when you are harmed in any way, when you are insulted in any way. And that's how they used eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Go to Exodus chapter 21. Hold your hand in Matthew, hold your hand in 1 Peter, and hold your hand in Exodus. How many hands have you got? But in Exodus chapter 21, let me show you the first example. This is in the context of civil law. In the context of civil law, verse 22, verse 22 of Exodus 21, if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there's any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In other words, it's not, in other words, there's not a vigilante approach here. It's to preserve society. You let judges deal with these matters. You let there be justice, some form of justice, some form of recompense, protecting the weak from the strong. You need to have this law to do that. It's a civil case. There's no personal vengeance. You don't go and personally knock the guy's tooth out. You let the judges handle it. And you know what it is? It's, it's the punishment must fit the crime. The, the tendency sometimes is to overdo it, and this keeps the punishment fitting the crime. It protects the weak because there's a law that says this will happen if somebody does that to you. Justice should be carried out. It's not for personal vendetta. It's something that must take place before the magistrates. We don't want judges, we want judges to uphold laws. We don't want judges to let the courtroom be a place of showing mercy. Or you just let people go all the time. It doesn't matter what you do. You're free to go. We overlook it. You want the courtroom to be a place that upholds the law that justice is upheld. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says this, listen to this. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Do you hear what I just read? When, when you don't execute justice, people just get more and more evil. God has given us God gave these civil laws to regulate society, regulate depraved humanity in society. 
Turn to Leviticus chapter 24. You can let go of Exodus. Le- Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. Once again, in the context of civil laws, how we operate the Jewish society of Israel. Leviticus 24, 19. If a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. See, there is to be equality. Punishment is to fit the crime also in a civil setting. You can read through these passages. I don't have time, but you can see where it talks about the judge and the elders of the city, and they come before them, and these these penalties are carried out. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Here you see it even more clearly. Deuteronomy chapter 19. A single witness shall not rise up against a man Verse 15, Deuteronomy 19, 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Go down to verse 18. The judges shall investigate thoroughly. If the witness is a false witness, he has accused his brother falsely. It goes on from there. Just talking about, I'm just trying to show you the context. Thus you shall show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So we want the courts to uphold justice. We don't want them to simply say, oh, that doesn't matter. You can get, you don't want judges to do that. You want them to uphold the law. That's what the law is there for. Now, it doesn't mean that if someone commits a crime against me personally, I don't have the right to go and take justice in my own hands. That's something for the court to do. If it's a breaking the law, then that needs to be punished under the law. I still have the responsibility to forgive and not be bitter. I had the responsibility to bring some kind of blessing to my enemy. It doesn't mean, that what these verses don't mean is that I can carry a personal vendetta. That's what these verses don't mean. They simply mean this is the way to regulate society and the functioning of society and not to have chaos and disorder and let human nature run the day. There's these laws that should be upheld. I can't personally hate anyone. I can't personally seek uh, vengeance with anyone. But that's different than civil laws in society. Those things must be upheld. And what was going on is the Pharisees were taking a law for civil society and applying it on a personal level and saying it's okay to hold a grudge. It's okay to seek vengeance. It's okay to get even. And that's what Jesus is correcting here in these verses. And, and you, uh, you see it in verse 39. This is, he said, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek. Let me, you read these things, you wonder, what is he talking about here? Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek also. Listen, that is your right to your dignity. That was a very insulting thing to slap somebody in the face. It still is. 
But it's the point of trying to hold on to the right of my dignity. Oh, you've insulted my dignity. That's what Jesus is addressing. Don't hold on to your dignity. You're, 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 you, know, you make that everything. Uh, if anyone wants to sue you, take the shirt, let him have your coat also. Don't hold on to your personal stuff. These, in fact, this comes from some study notes in MacArthur Study Bible. I just want to read this. Jesus applied this principle of non-retaliation to affronts against one's dignity, lawsuits to gain one's personal assets, infringements on one's liberty. Verse 41, um, whoever forces you to go one mile, don't go with him too. And violations of property rights. Verse 42, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So he's calling for a full surrender of all personal rights. You look at all the hate in our world, isn't everybody is fighting for rights. Everybody is just all about their rights. And Jesus says, you're in my kingdom, let that stuff go. That's, that's how you have this happy life. All caught up in trying to hold on to your rights. And Jesus goes on, if you're still back in Matthew, I'm not sure where I have you right now. Are you in Matthew by any chance? Probably not. Go back to Matthew. I just read 39 through 42. Of five, Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5. I just read to you 39, 40, 41, and 42. Those are the verses about the rights. Don't hold on to these things. That's what Jesus is teaching there. Then in verse 43, notice what he says. You have heard that it was said, this is what the Pharisees teach you. This is what your religious leader teaches you. This is what your traditions teach you. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, look at this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Uh, how God-like could you possibly be than to love your enemies? <laughs> for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Unbelievers love like that. That's nothing supernatural about that kind of love. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be, oh wow, perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, if love is the greatest thing there is, then loving your enemy is the greatest thing that love can do. Think about that. Because love is about doing something. The greatest thing that love can do is to love an enemy. And it's a true test of character. It's not how you treat your friends. It's how do you treat your enemies? How do you respond to the criticism and the attacks and the insults that people throw your way? That's the question. And like, well, like I said, unless you are infused with divine power from God, I don't, your flesh will not let you go there, go here where Jesus is trying to take you. See, they justified hatred. They justified hatred. Love, your, love the people that are lovable, love the people that you like, love the people that are in your circle, but you're, you're justified in not loving your enemies. That's what the Pharisees taught. 
They are your enemies. You do not have to expand this love thing out to them. Bitterness and revenge is okay. They told you it's okay to hate people. It's okay to hate people. And that's what Jesus is challenging there in verse 43. He says, love your enemies. If you're in my kingdom, the character of one in my kingdom does not hate. He doesn't even hate his enemies. Love your enemies. And we have a lot of hatred in our society. Lots of it. Lots of hatred. It's not the way to live a meaningful life is to walk around as a bitter person, angry and bitter towards people. See, we're object-oriented in our love. Our love is based on the kind of object that something is. They're attractive. Their personality is, I find good. I, I, I enjoy being around them. It's all about uh, the objects and how favorable I, I view them. Um, but true love is, 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 is need-oriented. Get this, need-oriented. Remember the question, love your neighbor? Well, who's my neighbor? And the Pharisees tried to limit who the neighbor thing was, and Jesus wanted to show you, neighbor is anybody in need. Anybody that has a need, that's your neighbor. Love is need-oriented. How I can meet the need. And that's why in Romans 12 it says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy needs clothing, clothe him. Because it's, it's an action. It's, and, and you do that whether the feeling of love is there at all. You just do that because that's what love does. And that's why he says in verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 3, give a blessing because he needs a blessing. For, he needs to be blessed. He needs to be prayed for. He needs to be, uh, his needs need to be met somehow. He needs to hear the gospel. You are one who has inherited blessing so that you could bless others. That's what 1 Peter 3, 9 is all about. And so he goes on to say that if I'm God's child, then I should be characterized by love. If I, if I don't exceed this passage in Matthew 5, if I don't exceed the human standard, the human standard is love people that are in your group or you're friends with or whatever. If I don't exceed the human standard, then the world will not know that there's anything supernatural that's happened in my life. It's when they see something supernatural, they can't explain. When they see me loving enemies and they can't explain that humanly, that's not humanly explainable. Folks, that's what you're called to. I know your flesh doesn't like it any more than mine does at times, but the point is, that's what we've been called to. We've been called to that. And so go back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. I guess I should explain that be perfect verse. Um, Be perfect as I am perfect in Matthew 5 before we move on to that. But basically... I cannot be perfect. And that's what this does. It shows me how much I need a Savior. Uh, I need the divine nature. I need something to make me like God and to love like God loves. A Christian is not somebody that keeps the Sermon on the Mount. A Christian is somebody that knows they can't keep the Sermon on the Mount. You know what I'm saying? 
A Christian is somebody that realizes I've read all that stuff on the Sermon on the Mount and I cannot do it. I can't do it. I can't live up to that. I need a Savior. So he throws that standard at the end. Be perfect as I am perfect. Because you've got to be perfect to go to heaven. That's, the, that's your problem and my problem. And I can't be. And that's why Jesus came. Because he was perfect. And he lived the perfect life. That we all need to go to heaven. And by faith in him, God imputes that perfect life to me. He credits that life to me. Because Jesus loved his enemies perfectly. I don't love my enemies perfectly. I want to retaliate at times. That's the flesh. But Jesus never did. He was perfect. And I trust in his perfection to take me to heaven, not my own. Go back to 1 Peter. Then he says this. Let's see if we can get through these points here. A Christian is not... um, so he goes on and says in uh, verse, verse 10, we're looking at verse 10 where he starts Psalm 34. And, uh, and what he's doing here is showing that this is how consistent God is. Even in the Old Testament, he said these same kinds of things that we've seen in verses 8 and 9. So this is nothing new. It's what the Old Testament taught. And like I said, this is a psalm where David is in a, in a, in a cave and, uh, and he's not seeing necessarily good days, but he says, if you want to see good days, he says, this is what you do. The one who desires. I've got to get up every day and desire this. I like that verse 10. You've got to desire this. Every day I, I, every day I want to see life through God's eyes, not my own. Uh, Dave Paulson wrote a great book, Seeing with New Eyes, Seeing Life Through the Lens of Scripture. It's just like you're just getting a different view of life because you look at life not through your own understanding of things, but you look at life through God's eyes. And that's kind of what I see, think about when I think about this. It's seeing life the way God sees it, recognizing he's in control and he's sovereign and there's nothing that comes at me. There's no enemies that come at me. There's no difficulties or trials that come at me that, man, he has not brought my way. He brings them. He's sovereign. He uses them. He has a purpose in them. And he has concern as for how I respond to them. How do I respond? How does my life look in the midst of all the trials and difficulties that I'm, I'm living in the midst of? These people that he's living in the midst of. You want to you know what a good life is? A meaningful and purposeful life is? He says it's a life that does these things. That relies on God's power to do these things, that has these attitudes and these perspectives and these responses. The first one um, he says, and this is a good one to start with, must keep his tongue from evil. Wow. Must keep his tongue from evil. It's the idea of energetic restraint. I've got to restrain my tongue. Work, work at restraining your tongue. You will admit that most of your problems are from things you have said you wish you had not. I mean, that's my problem. You would think most of the things in life that I go through is because I've said something I wish I had not have said. Sometimes it takes the form of writing a text even. But it's the imperative in the Greek and, and it just energetic restraint. Put everything you have into keeping your mouth closed in regards to evil. 
Evil means profane or slanderous when you're slandering someone or degrading someone with your speech. It's uh, where most of our problems come from. There's something about being able to say that. I don't know why we think like that, but we do. The tongue is a fire, James 3 says, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. Your whole life is set by the course, the course of your life is set by your tongue. For example, you can be known as a person with a proud tongue. You talk about yourself all the time. You boast. A perverted tongue. You say perverse things. A destructive tongue, Proverbs 17.4. You just, you just tear down. You don't build up. You tear down with your tongue. A gossiping tongue. You, you talk about people to hurt them or just to be talking about them because you're afraid to go talk to them. Or a flattering tongue. Just empty praise because you, be, you want people to like you. I mean, those are ways the Bible describes the tongue. It gives a lot of space to the tongue in Scripture. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Psalm 141.3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Because it's so destructive. It's so destructive. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And you know, it's really a matter of the heart because the tongue is connected to the heart. In, in Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out that which fills the heart. There's a connection between your heart and your mouth and mine. And what I say, I have a perverted tongue because I have perverted thoughts. I have a bitter tongue because I have bitter thoughts. I have a destructive tongue because I have destructive thoughts. Whatever. The connection is there and the confession of sin needs to be at the heart level. Not so much what I say. I said it for a reason and it comes from my heart. I need to deal with the heart because that's from which the mouth speaks. Look at the second thing he says in in these verses. And his lips from speaking deceit. Tell the truth. Don't lie. Don't lie. I heard this a long time ago that somebody said, if everybody in our society started telling the truth, our economy would collapse. Probably true. Our government would collapse. You know that. I read this. The pastor said his father used to tell him and his brothers when they were growing up, it's always better to tell the truth because you don't know, because then you don't have to remember what you told somebody else. He says, when you tell a lie, you have to keep adding to the lie, and pretty soon it starts to catch up with you because you start finding yourself contradicting previous lies. So Peter says, you want to live a good life. He says, defend, defend honesty. Tell the truth. Verse 11, you must turn away from evil. Sounds obvious. The, the word is really a strong word, turn away. It's, it's really the idea of reject something that is sinful. It means to bend over backwards, uh, to finish a project, for example, excruciating effort, perseverance against Evil. Um, Peter's saying, bend over backwards to stay away from evil. Like you're swerving to avoid a collision. 
that idea. It's an evasive action. You, you want to eliminate as much temptation in your life as possible because uh, you see it coming. And you must be alert and you don't want to end up in a ditch. Think of, think of something you struggle with. Think of some sin that you're struggling with. And that, and that sin just keeps gaining more and more traction in your life. He says, turn away from it. Pray, God, it'll get less and less traction in my life in the days ahead. I think of that verse in Romans 12, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, abhor what is evil, abhor, loathe what is evil. I have to pray God would give me a heart like that. God, help me hate evil. The world makes it look so attractive. But help me to hate what is evil to turn away from it, to loathe it, to bend over backwards, to stay away from it. We don't often do that. We, we let ourselves stumble into it or we allow ourselves to run toward it. That tends to be our heart. Once again, it's a heart issue, but it's the sin that so easily entangles us, trips us up. And then he says in verse 11, and do good, Do good, abhor, abhor what is evil, Romans 12, 9 says, cling to what is good. Just cling to what is good and let, let the clinging to goodness overpower all the desire for evil. The desire for good, let it be the desire that pushes out the desire for evil. Doing good is what Jesus said he saved us to do, save for good works. Titus 3.8 says, this is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things I want to speak confidently so that you who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Good deeds don't save us, but good deeds are evidence of our salvation and we should all be involved in good deeds. Just every day, think, God, what can I do good today for someone? What can I do good for today for someone that it will bring glory to you? Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. He must seek peace and pursue it. The fourth point you see there, must seek peace and pursue it. The end of verse 11. It's something we must seek diligently. We want to be peacemakers because Jesus tells us to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. We don't try to start conflicts. We don't try to stir up controversies. We don't try to divide people. We try to bring people together. We, we're not about that. We're to be peacemakers. Look for ways. As far as it depends on you, Romans 12 says, be at peace with all men. It doesn't mean life is always peaceful around us. That's not what it means. It means that I am striving to be a peacemaker. Jesus had to go through a lot of turmoil to make peace for us with God, so we know it doesn't come without difficulty and turmoil at times. But we're to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. It's because we're at peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Romans 5.1 says we have peace with God. We're not at war with God anymore. And because I'm not at war with God anymore, I'm not at war with anybody else. 
I'm not at war with my neighbors, my spouse, my, my people I go to church with, people I work with. If I belong to Christ, I have peace has been made between me and God. And that is the peace, that peace allows me, therefore, to be at peace with all men. I promise that should be our desire and our goal, even our enemies. Let them sin, but don't let them cause us to sin. Peacemakers. Colossians 1.20, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, all things were reconciled. At the cross, peace was, ma- peace was made between you and God. Therefore, you can have peace with anyone. They may not want peace with you, but you can be at peace with them. And then finally, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Uh, go back to the peacemaker for one second. I just thought of this earlier, but you know, one way to be a peacemaker is to get rid of some of your preferences. You have personal preferences, just get rid of some of them. We all have too many. And what happens is those just become points of contact for conflict. And I'm not talking about if it's a sin. If it's a sin, that's different. I'm just talking about personal preferences. We all got them, personal viewpoints, personal ways of doing things, personal ways of thinking about something. If it's, if, it's, if it's written in the Bible, thus saith the Lord, hang on to it with all you got. But if it's just a personal way of doing something, let's go of some of those things. Because all they turn into being is just conflicts with other people who have personal preferences. And we just have a bunch of battles over personal preferences. It's one thing to debate theology. It's another, theological truths. It's another thing just to debate about personal preferences. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. God's eyes are wide open. And this is the reason it's the good life. This is the reason it's the happy life. This is the reason it's life, a, a fulfilling life and a meaningful life is because you are in the very center of what God wants you to be doing. God looks at you with favor. He attends your prayer and he, he, he never leaves you and he never forsakes you and he, he's always with you and you have that confidence. Psalm 1611, he will, he will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Just think, to be in his presence, David says there's fullness of joy. You will make known to me the path of life. What a confidence. What a confidence that he gives us. So David's saying, I made up my mind. I will bless the Lord at all times. I'll bless the Lord at all times. I'll bless the Lord at all times knowing that he, his eyes are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. And he he concludes it with this very, very, Stern warning, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You do not want God to be against you. God is against those that don't know Christ. God is against those who have never put their faith and trust in Jesus. God is against those whose sin has not been forgiven by the blood of the cross. God's against those to whom the the peace that was made at the cross has not been applied to their life by faith in Jesus. Jesus. 
There's a stern warning there. The face of the Lord is against those. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 7. One day someone will, some will stand before Jesus. And he will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. My face is against you because I never knew you. You thought you did all these religious things. You thought you did all the right things, but it was just evil. It came from an evil heart. It came from a sinful heart. It came from a heart that was not redeemed by faith in Christ. So, there's two verses in how firm a foundation I want to read to you. Fear not, I am with thee. O be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen and help thee and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. The soul that on Jesus still leans for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. (laughs) That's truly the one that the eyes of the Lord are toward him and toward us. May these things characterize us. May these things be qualities that we pursue as a church, that we don't seek, that we seek to be harmonious and brotherly, show brotherly love and kindness and sympathy toward one another. May we be those who don't have flattering, prideful, perverted tongues, gossiping tongues. May we be those who pursue what is good and abstain from what is evil. May we be those who desire to live a happy life, (laughs) a life where God is at the center and remember the Lord and not retaliate. Let him be the one that handles our battles for us. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your truth. We just thank you, God, for Peter and how practical it is for us. We know, God, apart from you, we can do none of these things. They're just all a bunch of good ideas on paper. But apart from, apart from you, we're left to our own flesh, and our flesh does not want to do any of these things. But because of Jesus, because Christ in us, the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us because our lives have been transformed. I pray you would give us the power and desire to pursue these things that we've studied these last two Sundays. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.